Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Today, May 12, 2020, Realty Speak is being recorded live by your host, Bill Widener, from the Financial District of Manhattan, New York, and our guest, Tom Carroll, joining us at a safe distance in Charleston, South Carolina. Like you, we are in the midst of navigating this pandemic, and our collective wish is that we find you healthy, safe, and that you stay that way. Tom, thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak. Appreciate you having me, Bill. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Tom, you're the managing partner of both Sunbelt Partners and Watermark Partners Real Estate, and also created your own in-house broker-dealer, Ballastrock, to raise capital for your funds. The organization is five years in and is on its fifth fund with 6,500 units spanning Ohio, Michigan, and the Sunbelt states. You have a master's degree in economics from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and have worked globally for HSBC and Goldman Sachs. I am stoked to be talking with you, Tom, about all things syndication, and I can't think of anyone more qualified to tell us all about how to do it than you. Would love to hear your story about how you jumped the fence as the trading desk head on the Goldman Sachs fixed income currencies and commodities trading floor over to real estate. What happened there? Yes, I used to run structured credit trading for Latin America for Goldman. And in the last few years of my career at GS, it was obvious to me that I needed to create an alternative non-correlated income stream for myself and my family. And so I started investing in real estate. I spent a lot of time researching all sorts of different asset classes within real estate. A friend of mine happened to be starting a fund called Watermark Partners based out of Michigan, an old friend of mine from my days back at HSBC. And I ended up being one of the largest investors in his fund when he started back in 2014. 2014, 2015, and early 2016, I was an active LP investor, but not a general partner. I was a limited partner investor, but not a general partner investor. So when I retired from Goldman in 2016, my friend who had started this at the time, very very small niche private equity firm called Watermark Partners, asked me to come on board and help them to grow the business. When I started, Watermark had about 6 million of assets under management, and today we have just shy of 300 million of assets under management. And as Bill, you mentioned earlier, we have about 6,500 units across five states in the US. So I started very much as an investor. My first career was not in real estate. My first career was in finance and trading risk of all sorts of different ilk from interest rate risk to illiquid credit risk. The shift was a shift from one type of complex risk to another type of complex risk. And there's quite a lot of skill transfer was possible in making that move. Yeah. So it was very easy for you to just reallocate those skills to a new asset class, real estate, as opposed to commodities. Absolutely. Ultimately, it was I was trading one complex, illiquid asset class for another complex, illiquid asset class that has unique features. But ultimately, as with all things, it's about proper modeling, about understanding the inputs adequately, 
and in real estate in particular, about having a great operating team. And so I've had the good fortune to partner with strong operators that had that operating background where I could bring my expertise to the table and help complement the expertise of the rest of the team. Real estate, in my experience, is very much a team sport, especially when you start getting into larger portfolios. And I had the good fortune to work with a strong team and continue to build a strong team over the last four years that I've been doing this full time. So how many people were with the firm when you first started as a limited partner? The firm initially started with three founding partners based out of Michigan. Um, I was the fourth partner and I joined with a fifth partner. So we moved from three to five people. And at the time, the three people that started the firm were doing it part-time. So they all had full-time jobs doing something else and it was a side project. Now we have 17 corporate employees. We have 40 operational employees directly and we have another approximately 100 operational employees that work indirectly for us through third-party property managers. So we've grown from a tiny organization operating on a part-time basis out of somebody's garage into a medium-sized real estate private equity firm over a period of about four years. And there have been stops and starts and challenges along the way, but it's been an exciting ride. Kind of amazing what growth you've had. You were managing $6 million of assets, and now you're managing $300 million of assets. I don't have to do the math to know that that's a pretty big scale. We've had a a specific niche target, uh, and we've really honed in on that niche. When I started and the first fund that I invested in as an LP, a limited partner investor, there really was not a massive amount of strategy around it. Um, It was geographically, the strategy was geographically focused, but within that, there was no asset class focus. When I came on board, the first thing that I required that we do was to really hone in our strategy, hone in our focus on a specific asset class where we believe we have expertise, which is workforce multifamily housing. And that's all we've ever done ever since is workforce multifamily housing. So you really haven't done the property type of office or industrial or retail. You really, really focused on workforce multifamily. In fact, even more refined than just workforce multifamily, as we've expanded, as we've grown, our point of focus has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower, such that now our growth going forward is exclusively B, B minus, workforce multifamily, garden style apartments in small to medium sized cities across the Southeast at the moment, which is our focus going forward. We don't even look at deals really in larger cities which have much more competitive markets. We look for small to medium-sized cities that have specific economic characteristics, and we hone in on that. We started from a a pretty broad mandate, but based in a couple of small towns in Michigan and, and Ohio, and we've expanded to a greater geographic footprint, but a much more narrow strategic footprint where we know that we've got a specialty operating team that's capable and focused on operating that specific type of asset. Well, I'm sure this growth uh, involved a tremendous amount of, you know, hands-on management and a lot of analysis. But one of the things, and the thing that we're really here to talk about today, is syndication, right? You have 
you have the uh, investor organization that invests in real estate that may use all their own capital, never go out and look for investors, and they will grow over a period of time that way. They might be managing the properties themselves, or they might hire a property manager as a vendor. But what you've done is you've been able to scale at this degree because even right from the beginning, there were other investors. And what I want to talk about is the different terms that people hear when they think of syndication. So when we use the term syndication in investment vernacular, what we're saying is that it's a shared pool of resources and shared risks to make an investment. Kind of a simple way to look at it, but that's where the simplicity ends. And one of the terms that people hear all the time, which are interchangeable, and I'd like you to explain them to us, and you mentioned them before, general partner, limited partner, but you got general partner, which is also known as GP, sponsor, lead, operator, manager. Why are there so many different ways to describe who ultimately runs the show in syndication? And tell us what is the simple breakdown of the structure and how does it really, really work? Excellent question and a lot to unpack there. It works differently in each deal in many cases, but speaking broadly, there will be a general partner, which is ultimately the person that brings the investors together and that brings the operators for a given deal together. In in the development space, that person is often called a developer. Um, In our space, we don't develop assets. We buy existing workforce multifamily assets and we value add that asset. So we're not developers, uh, we're, but we're still a general partner. As a sponsor, I will put a deal together. That means pulling all of the legal documentation together, the marketing materials, and ultimately in many ways, the fundraising is done off my reputation or the reputation of my team. We will go out, we will bring a group of investors together. That's that syndication process. And then we will put forward a strategy. And that strategy is what we then have to deliver on. In delivering that strategy, we may work with third-party operators. We may work with third-party managers. In our case, going forward, we only work in-house. So we do all of our operating in-house with our own operations teams. But in the past, we have worked with third-party managers and third-party operators. So what would be an example of a third-party manager? A property manager would be an example. You may also have a third-party custodian at the asset management level. But generally, I think in the real estate space where people talk about third parties, they're talking about third party property managers. So the guy that's the listing, the the leasing agent, the guy that's the maintenance man that's working on your property may not necessarily be on your payroll. Uh, They may be on the payroll of a third party. And what about operator? What's an example of that? Again, I think would be the on the property management side, it would be the person that is overseeing the day-to-day operations of a given piece of real estate, whether it's the office building or the commercial real estate that you might be looking at. So could a general partner, you know, say, bring all the investors together, you know, create the fund, take care of all the legal documents, go out and find the properties, but hire someone else to run all the back office, hire someone else to do all the property management? Would that be a typical structure? 
It certainly could be. If you want to think of it, a general partner is, to use a sports metaphor in a sport that I know very little about, but it is like the quarterback. So the general partner is quarterbacking things, and quarterbacking may mean bringing their own team to bear, bringing their own team members in-house, or it may mean using contracting third parties to do construction work, contracting third parties to be operators, contracting third parties to do accounting and legal work for you. Ultimately, it's that centralized quarterback role that's the sponsor or GP's role. When you first started back in 2014-15, were you outsourcing any of this or you were still doing everything in-house? At the beginning, we were outsourcing almost everything. We were reliant on third parties for almost every aspect of the business outside of really the acquisition, execution, and of course, underwriting and investor origination and marketing outside of those centralized roles, all of the actual day-to-day operations, the property management of the buildings that we acquired was done by a third party, a third party property manager. We've grown well beyond that now. And we're at a stage where what we found is that generally speaking, third-party property managers are not as competent as in-house property management. And so in our most recent fund here in the Southeast, we've exclusively built from the ground up and used our own in-house property management. And we've seen massively improved results as a result of that, so much so that we've gone back to the Midwest where we started and we've started taking third-party managed assets back into our own in-house management. And again, we've seen improvements as soon as we've done that. So uh, you, many, many operators, many, many sponsors do use third parties and there are, of course, better third parties and worse third-party property managers as there are in construction, as there are in so many segments. In our experience, doing it yourself, having the capacity and scale to be able to do it yourself leads to better results because you can hire and fire a better team. Do you think the popularity of the syndication model has grown over the last, say, five to 10 years vs. you know, what it was, say, pre-2010? Absolutely. And there's a legislative reason for it. There was a change in crowd funding legislation in the early teens, I forget which year specifically, and that enabled a huge increase in access for your average investor to syndicated deals to real estate more broadly. A while ago, real estate at the institutional size level was, as in larger buildings, $25 million plus, access was only available to high net worth individuals, family offices, and institutional investors. Now, through syndication, you can get access to a piece of commercial real estate. You can invest in a piece of commercial real estate with minimums of $1,000 in some cases. In our case, our minimum is $25,000. But in the big scheme of things, historically for real estate, to be able to invest in a diversified portfolio of real estate private equity at $25,000, it's an incredibly low entry point. So that really has shifted a lot. And I think going looking forward, you're going to see a continuation of a growth of this segment. Private equity real estate is very different to the publicly listed markets. 
obviously doesn't have the day-to-day volatility of a REIT. In many cases, has higher returns, lower overheads. Certainly, that's the case for us. We run lower overheads than a large REIT would run. We have access to deal flow that is smaller and more yieldy than a larger REIT would have the capacity to invest in. So we believe we're able to create outsized returns relative to what a REIT might uh, be able to invest in. But obviously, you give up the liquidity that you would have in a REIT in some circumstances and at the same time, some of the volatility. So when you say REIT, you're talking about a real estate investment trust, the publicly traded real estate investment trust. And what we've seen over the last a couple of months with those, especially those in the non-industrial sector, right? So say the hospitality sector, the office sector, a lot of those values, those stock values of those REITs have been distressed considerably over the last couple of months, whereas for private equity syndication, we're not seeing that kind of uh, disruption in terms of value. Is that true? Certainly, we've seen substantial volatility in the share price of publicly traded real estate investment trusts. The underlying valuation of the real estate in those trusts is impossible to determine on such a short-term basis. So the volatility that's driving the share price movement is demand-supply pressure, what's called technical pressures, on the shares themselves in the REIT as they're traded, as opposed to actual changes in valuation in the underlying real estate. So that's perhaps a complicated answer, but ultimately, we don't know yet what actual valuation changes have occurred in different industries. But REIT share prices move in expectation. They move because there's a change in demand and supply, but that indicates a change in an expectation of valuation changes that we don't know yet have or have not occurred. It's substantially more complicated uh, than one asset type like REITs have changed value, real estate private equity has not changed value. That may or may not be true. It really is a factor of what the underlying real estate has actually done. Real estate private equity is not marked to market on a daily basis. So therefore, until an asset is actually sold, until there's a realization of the price point, whether it's a, a win or a loss, you don't really know what the value is, or you only have an indication of what the value is. Um, whereas with REITs, you know on a daily basis, on an intraday basis, on an intrasecond basis, if it's a highly traded share, what the share price is. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the underlying real estate has moved that much. It's a factor of what's happened to the share price. I don't think that's complicated at all. I think that's actually a great explanation and that, you know, the listeners will say, wow, you know, that's that's an interesting perspective that the reduction in share price of a publicly traded REIT doesn't necessarily correlate to the value of the real estate that's in that real estate investment trust. So thank you very much for that. See, that's why it's good that I'm talking to somebody who's a real estate syndicator that used to work for HSBC and Goldman Sachs. When we were first talking about the popularity of syndication, you had mentioned the word crowdfunding. And I think I want to clarify something and correct me if I'm wrong. Crowdfunding is really a strategy to raise capital, but it's not the syndication itself. Is that correct? 
Correct. It's a way to get out there in front of a large number of investors directly rather than going through a broker-dealer network to raise capital in a traditional format. So it's a more like direct-to-consumer model rather than B2B model. So some of the crowdfunding platforms that are out there now, you would subscribe to them, they would see your offering and then they would market it to their list of potential investors. And obviously, there's some kind of financial arrangement between you and them for marketing. So they're basically marketing your offering for you. That's correct. We are not particularly active users of those platforms. We have raised the vast majority of our capital directly and organically However, there are plenty of syndicators out there that use those crowdfunding platforms to raise money. All right. So now let's really get into the more complicated aspect of this, which is what you said. You're raising most of your own capital. So in effect, you become an issuer of a security. So you would either have to go and register that with the SEC or you would use the requirements under Regulation D, Rule 506 of Regulation D, and there's a 506B and a 506C, and there's also a Reg A and a Reg A plus, and we're probably going to spend a lot of time on this part. <laughs> So, uh, you know, just give us a little history about, you know, how most syndicators start out. I mean, they don't run out and all of a sudden, you know, use Regulation D. You know, they call up their aunt, their uncle and their brother and their sister and their best friend from elementary school and say, hey, you know, I, I, I see this piece of real estate that I'm going to buy. You want to invest with me. And that really is a syndication. But sometimes people like to call it a joint venture. And maybe it is a joint venture. Do you, you want to talk a little bit about that? How this all starts for somebody and how it then evolves into what it is that you're doing today? Sure. Well, first and foremost, get yourself a good lawyer, a good securities lawyer specifically. I cannot give legal advice. And, you know, somebody that's not a lawyer should never be giving legal advice. However, I can speak to the way that we started as an organization. We started because the three founding partners did exactly what you just described. They had gone out from 2010 through 2014, and they had, between the three of them, purchased a few buildings on a joint venture basis. So they'd set up a small LLC, limited liability company in Michigan at the time. They had each been a percentage owner of those LLCs based on how much capital they contributed. So that's the equivalent of calling up your aunt or uncle, as you were discussing. And then they bought buildings on that basis. However, the second that they wanted to move from a handful, and I mean a handful of investors, all of whom are active, to a situation in which there are the active managers of the fund, what would be called the general partners, and the passive limited partners in the fund, passive investors, the second they wanted to make that move, they started using a Reg D 506B for boy private placement. And the core difference, as I understand it, and again, you should consult a lawyer for the specifics, but the core difference comes down to your ability to market and how broadly 
you plan on distributing and fundraising, distributing this issuance and fundraising for this issuance. So the first issuance was very, it was relatively close friends and family. It was all people that the original founding partners had a relationship with. And so they went out and they used this 506B for boy private placement model under Regulation D. One of the things that you said was when they went from being a joint venture with active partners, all three of them, as part of the venture to then wanting to take on passive investors who were also called limited partners, that's when they had to make this shift because then that would no longer qu- uh, qualify as a joint venture because all these people who are investing are just, they're just giving their money in anticipation of returns. Obviously, they're taking risk, but they're anticipation of returns, but they're not actively involved in the, in the day-to-day activities of managing the real estate or making decisions on what to buy or when to sell. That's exactly correct. And the general partner, the team that are actively making those decisions on a day-to-day basis, as a general partner, as a project sponsor, you want to go out, make sure that your investors know upfront what your strategy is. And then over time, you want to report to your investors what's going on. But on a day-to-day basis, it's impossible to get feedback from a broad group of passive investors. So it would make decision-making impossible if you didn't have a general partner that had the control and the decision-making power, perhaps with limits, perhaps with constraints, but control over the day-to-day decisions. And that's what that general partner does. So yes, at some point you need to move away from the JV model, the joint venture model, and towards a general partner, limited partner model. And that's where Reg D, 506C, 506B come into play. So we started as a Reg D, 506B issuer. And then as we've expanded our reach of investors, we've taken the conservative approach of issuing the more onerous 506C issuance type. It's more onerous because it puts more requirements on us and our investors to verify things like accreditation which means the wealth and income level of an investor. Uh, With a 506B private placement, the investor is able to self-verify that they are accredited, which is an SEC standard. With 506C private placements, you actually need to get a third party to verify them, which creates incremental effort. But if you're going to, we've taken a conservative approach that if you're going to actively market Uh, through things even like just a website and things like that, we decided that the conservative approach was to issue this more onerous 506C private placement because we have a pretty broad reach. At the moment, we have about 1,100 investors, 1,100 investors that we've acquired over the last five years. Um, So we have a really broad group of investors all over the country, primarily in the US, but we actually do have a lot of international investors as well. And so it was important to us that we... Uh, we're very careful about abiding by SEC rules and all of the different relevant regulations. Let's talk about accredited investor. Can you share with the Realty Speak listeners what the definition of an accredited investor is right now from the SEC? Absolutely. Ultimately, it, as you kind of highlight, Bill, it does change a little bit over time. So you should always check in on the SEC website what the most recent definition of accredited investor is. But to the best of my knowledge as of now, it is a million dollars of 
net worth excluding your primary residence or $200,000 of reported income for the last two years as an individual or $300,000 as a married couple of joint reported income for the last two years. So you can qualify either of the two routes, one by proving your net worth or two by proving your income. And generally for income, people just post two years worth of taxes and that's the cleanest and easiest way to do that. So on the 506B for boy, you were basically dealing with people that you had a previous relationship with. You had an understanding of their ability to invest in something like this. They self-certified it that, that they were accredited based on whatever the regulations were at that time. The 506C, C for cat, allows you to more broadly distribute information by advertising that you do this, maybe going to conferences and talking about what it is that you're doing, but you still can't show somebody the actual memorandum and marketing materials and projections unless they're accredited or can they look at it and not be accredited and and then they just can't invest because they're not qualified. We only show material to investors that confirm in advance that they are accredited. So our process, and again, you really do need to speak to an attorney for the micro detail here, but our process is that you need to certify that you're an accredited investor at the first step of entering our investor portal. So if you go to our website, sunbeltpre.com, so sunbeltpartnersrealestate.com, sunbeltpre.com, if you go to our website and click on the login button, you can create a login. And during that login process, you will self-verify that you're an accredited investor. And before I let you into our website, I have to acknowledge that you're an accredited investor. Once you're able to get into the website, then you'll have access to our offering memorandum, marketing materials, scenario analysis, etc. So you have general marketing access on the front of the page and detailed marketing access once you've self-verified that you are an accredited investor. However, you're not able to participate as an investor under a 506C private placement until you've had a third party verify that you are an accredited investor. So you can self-verify and get access to marketing materials, but you need third party verification before you can actually become an investor. That's our process at the moment. And we're constantly evaluating our process based on external counsel's legal advice. Often I see examples of emails from different organizations that are doing this. Uh, I see websites that have all sorts of information on them. I see invitations to webinars that pretty much go through the entire deck for a specific investment. That kind of seems risky to me. It, It almost seems like they're too out there, even if they're 506C. And again, you're not an attorney and I'm an attorney and obviously they got to talk to their own attorney to decide what it is that they're going to want to do. What's your take on that? 
clearly it's a sensitive subject for each sponsor to deal with individually with their external counsel. We also go through a broker-dealer. So many sponsors will take one of a couple of routes. They will either go the route of becoming a registered investment company under the Investment Companies Act, or they may go the route of going for distribution through registered representatives of FINRA-regulated broker-dealers. We work through FINRA registered broker dealers. So I'm a series 24, series seven, series 63. And those broker dealer compliance departments will be reviewing email communications. Those broker dealer compliance departments will be reviewing marketing materials, websites, social media, all of our emails are tracked. So I can't speak to what the industry does as a whole. And there are clearly different approaches and different interpretations as to how to manage these risks. But ultimately, from our perspective, the way we manage it is that we work through a broker-dealer, and that broker-dealer has a compliance department, and we work through that compliance department process for approvals before we market. I hear the term issuer, and that issuer term is sometimes paired with the general partner or the sponsor, and that the issuer has the right to raise capital for their own fund that they have created, and they don't necessarily have to use a broker-dealer or registered investment advisor or registered investment organization. Let's use an example. Let's say, for instance, I go out and I identify a property and it's going to be $5 million. And I say, you know what? I'm going to put 100000 in. I want to raise another $900,000 in equity capital. I'm going to get a $4 million loan and I'm going to get a private placement memorandum under 506B or C. And depending on which one of those, I'm those are the people that I'm going to go out and talk to. But I'm the issuer. I'm the sponsor. I'm the general partner. And I'm going to talk to all these people. I'm going to raise the capital. We're going to do everything the way it's supposed to be done. And I'm not going to use a broker-dealer. Can I do that? It's a factor of how many funds you've issued, the size that you are, and the advice that you receive from your legal counsel. Um, in our case, In our case, we've raised a lot of money. Um, so there's a few, there's a, uh, you know, a few points that our council highlighted to us, um, which relate to our size, which relate to our frequency of issuance. So there's a bunch of factors that are unique. So you give an example of a single $5 million fund. Well, in isolation, if you're raising it from a handful of people um, or, you know, uh, a select group of people, and that's the only fund that you're ever going to do then generally speaking, I would say the answer to that is no, you should not need a, a broker-dealer. However, if that is not your only issuance, it is not in isolation, and this is your 12th $5 million issuance this year alone, then I would think that your counsel would advise you to either register as an investment company under the Companies Act and or get set up with a broker-dealer that's going to do your distribution. 
it's a factor of size and scale. And again, you're not an attorney. I'm not an attorney. People should get proper counsel to make sure that what they are doing and have done and anticipate doing is consistent with the strategy that they're using to raise capital. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I think we really got into the weeds on that one (laughs) and uh, you know, let's, let's move on to actually the business of syndication. Right. And, and tell us some stories, tell us some stories about some of the funds and, uh, you know, the types of properties that you're buying. People sometimes will raise capital in advance and buy multiple properties in one fund. Sometimes general partners will identify one specific asset and then they'll go out and they'll raise capital just for that specific asset in the fund, single asset acquisition vehicle. What are you doing and what are you looking for and what's your strategy? I mean, you already indicated that it's a very specific type of workforce housing, but what's the strategy and how's it working? You highlight an excellent distinction, which is the difference between single asset syndicators and fund syndicators. It's a little bit of a dirty word, but we are really what's called a blind pool fund. Investors don't like to hear that idea because ultimately it means that we as general partners are making the decisions on what assets are acquired. So we lay out a strategy and then we raise a pool of capital and that pool of capital enables us to go out and make purchases as opposed to a single asset fundraise where a single asset syndicator or sponsor will go out, they will put a deal under contract, they'll put a little bit of their money down as deposit. And then after the deal is under contract, typically they'll go out and they'll fundraise to raise the money to close on the deal. It is easier to raise for a specific building, for a specific property, a single asset raise. However, it doesn't necessarily make for a better investment. In fact, our viewpoint is that it doesn't make for a better investment for a few reasons. First of all, a single asset fundraise has to bear quite a lot of legal costs and overhead costs, which are difficult to defer over a single asset in some cases. So there's overhead costs, there's legal costs. Each fund that you issue has expenses and costs. Arguably, the larger the fund, the less as a percentage of the equity deployed, the less those overheads are uh, if you do a larger fund with multiple assets in it. There's also the point about diversification. Many of our investors have twenty-five dollars or $50,000 that they want to invest. And so their ability to put $25,000 into a fund that is then onwardly investing in 10 to 20 different buildings means that they're getting instant geographic diversification, asset diversification, so on and so forth. So there's a, a really strong diversification argument to make. So we believe these larger funds with multiple assets in them create a more robust, sustainable, and consistent income stream, asset class, investment for our investors. Also, from the fundraising perspective, if you go out and you individually fundraise for 20 different individual assets, there's a reasonable likelihood that one out of those 20 deals isn't going to go very well. And as a result of that, you're going to um, have one out of 20 of your investors really ticked off with you. If instead you put all of those 20 deals into one single fund, ideally the other 19 deals 
in a diversification strategy. The other 19 deals, uh, the return of those deals is going to be slightly lower because it's going to be offset by the underperforming one out of 20 assets. But it should mean that none of your investors are upset because you have that overall performance and you don't have one investment that's a loser and that creates a bad taste in investors' mouths. The other critical point, though, for us has been that because we're buying deals that are in the kind of three to $15 million price point, so below institutional investors, we are an institutional investor, a small institutional investor. We run a very rigorous underwriting and diligence process like an institutional investor would, and we operate like an institutional investor. And a lot of our team are from places like Goldman. And so we have a lot of, uh, of that experience and institutional mindset towards the way that we approach investments. But we're playing at a retail price point. We're playing in that three to $15 million retail price point. We're buying from manpa type sellers. And then we're professionally operating these assets over time. But by having a pool of capital that's prearranged behind us, when we go to visit a property, when we deal with a seller or deal with a broker, those brokers, those sellers have absolute confidence in our capacity to close because they know that we already have the equity prearranged. And in our case, we already have long-term relationships with our lending partners. We've executed more than 100 transactions over the last six years as an organization. So we've acquired more than 100 properties over the last six years. We have massive lending relationships. We know exactly where we're finding our financing. We have it effectively prearranged in many cases, and we have our equity prearranged. And so when we go to acquire an asset, we are typically the highest quality experienced buyer in the buyer group. A year ago, that got us some additional traction, but ultimately sell, it was a seller's market and the seller just wanted the best price. Today, sellers more than ever before want surety of close. So they are willing to sacrifice a little bit on price to get surety of close because the closing process, as anyone that's participated in the closing before knows, the closing process is a painful, slow and costly process for both the buyer and seller. And so therefore, nobody wants to enter into a contract where they think there's a reasonable chance that the other party will default or will exit that contract. That surety of close, that pool of prearranged equity gives us a huge advantage when we're dealing with sellers of assets. When we're selling assets where we can deal with a professional buyer that has prearranged equity, we give that party much greater credibility and we're much more likely to get into a transaction with that buyer than we would with somebody that tells us they're a single asset fundraiser and they're going to fundraise after they've got the deal under contract. Well, that makes a lot of sense, Tom. And it's very interesting listening to you talk about it and the difference between last year and this year and how much more valuable that is for you as a purchaser in terms of credibility to the seller and to the broker. 
Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans. Normally, this is the part where I take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And if you were listening to this episode during this unusual time of times, I love that you chose to do so now. At this moment, we are all sharing a very similar experience a pandemic. However, there is a disparity in how each of us will navigate through it day to day and find the information we need to do so. And since I love to gather information and publish it, on April 10th, I created the COVID-19 resource blog on the website and update it every day. It has evolved into quite the plethora of information and includes info under the headings of New York State Government, New York City Government, the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor, financial and logistical resources, organizations with additional helpful information, New York State and City Housing Legislation to Watch, and podcasts and webinars from many different organizations. There are replays listed and links to future webinars. To check it out, just go to BillWidener.com and click on the pop-up that sends you right to the page. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. Feel free to copy for your own website or just share the page with others who you feel would benefit from the resources there. I hope it helps you in some valuable way and feel free to reach out if something you are looking for is not already there. I'll do what I can to find it and post it. Stay safe, stay well, and somehow, some way, we will emerge resilient. Now back to the show. You talked about prearranged relationships with lenders. When you have one of these blind pool funds that has a lot of equity capital in it, obviously you're looking for assets, you find one. How quickly can you secure the debt on that? And what kind of structure are you using in terms of loan to value ratio? Bill, we have worked with 14 different lenders over the last six years. When we started out, we were using local and regional banks, and we've grown. And now we use exclusively agency financing, though we do price CMBS, we do price life company financing. But in our specific workforce multifamily asset class, we've found that the agencies, Fannie, Freddie, tend to be aggressive in terms of their complete package of terms. When you look purely at rate, actually CMBS or life companies can often offer a lower rate. Given our overall strategy, when we think about terms, rate is a component of what we think about, but it's certainly not the only component. We also look at the assignability or the prepayability or the termination capacity for a given loan because we are doing high value add deals. And so we need the ability to either refinance or sell that asset without having a debt be so punitive that it makes it impossible to sell the deal. In terms of the terms that we get, generally speaking, with agency financing, it's fairly standardized. It's a factor of the market that you're in, the tier, the agency set tiers for different markets. Generally, we're working in small to medium-sized cities, so I believe we're either a tier two or tier three cities, depending on the location. And typically, we're looking at 70% to 75% loan to value. Bear in mind, we're buying high 
value-add assets. So that means that if we buy a $10 million asset, we're often creating in advance or expecting to spend between a million and a million and a half on that given project. So we might take on a $10 million deal, we might take 75% loan-to-value debt, but loan-to-total investment may be more like 65%. Generally, we fund our value-add out of equity. There are possibly more efficient ways to do that, but at the moment, that's how we fund ourselves. In our example, we buy a $10 million building. We might use between seven and seven and a half million of debt. The rest for the acquisition will be equity. And then for any improvements, we'll use equity capital to make those improvements. Different funds, different strategies will have different models. Our funds are income focused. So we focus on generating a high income and a tax shielded high income. And so we use equity for that value add rather than trying to use the cash flows of the property itself to create cash to do any value add projects that are required. But obviously different funds and different strategies have different ways of handling that. Our model is possibly a little bit less efficient in terms of IRR, internal rate of return or the total return of the fund, but it creates income instantly, which is what our investors are looking for. Our investors are looking for between 7 and 9% or 7 and 10% of income production each year, which is what we do. So last year, we paid out 9% net of fees to investors in cash on cash returns in Sunbelt Fund 1. And this year, we hope it will be something very similar. Um, we've been fortunate enough to be, as of today, completely unaffected in terms of our collections uh, by the COVID crisis. We've been very affected in the way that we do business. We've radically changed the way that we underwrite deals looking forward. But in terms of actual collections from our residents, we've had higher collections so far in May than we did in April. We had higher collections in the month of April um, or consistent collections with the months of February and March. So we've been very fortunate, but we've also worked extremely hard to make sure that that has been the case. And we also believe it's a factor of our strategy, the cities that we focus on, the price point of our rents relative to the size of stimulus packages and, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of complexity and, and detail as to why we believe we've gotten collections that are very consistent with pre-COVID. But as of today, that's the case. Well, yes, we were going to talk about Black Swan COVID-19. You brought it up. We'll definitely circle back to that, no doubt about it. But before we do that, I just want to ask you a couple of more questions about the structure of the funds. How many assets typically show up in each fund? What's the life expectancy of the fund? Three years, is it five years? Is it seven years? The investor obviously is looking to get a return over a period of time. You said that it generates income immediately. And then at some point, there'll either be a recapitalization through a refinance or a sale. How is all that working? And has that changed considerably since 2014-15 to now? So the current fund that we have a little bit left on um, is called Sunbelt Fund One. It is a 30 million equity raise. We're almost entirely raised at this point. And we use that 30 million of equity to acquire about 70 to 75 million worth of assets. As of today, we have about 40 million of those assets acquired. So we're approximately two thirds, if you will, through the acquisition stage of the fund. 
And we have two deals that we're working. We have a PSA, a purchase and sale agreement that's under negotiation on one and a letter of intent on the other. So we have two further deals totaling another 22 million, uh, bringing our total assets under management or under contract to 62 million out of about 70 to 75. So we're very close to completing the fund. And that gives you a sense of our general leverage. We're about two thirds debt to one third equity. In fact, arguably we're even slightly lower leverage than that overall. The lifespan of the fund is expected to be between three to five years. And we do use cash out refinancing to return investor equity, as well as using asset sales to return investor equity as well. If you would like to learn more about the details of this fund, offering memorandums are available on our website uh, once you've gone through the investor portal at sunbeltpre.com. And I'd be happy to walk any investor or potential investor through the micro details of our fee structure, et cetera, if you're interested in learning more. Do you use waterfalls in terms of uh, distributions? And, and explain to the listeners what a waterfall is. Absolutely. A waterfall is like an order of payments. Who gets paid first under what circumstances? And yes, we do. In fact, we differentiate in our funds between income and disposition or asset sale or refinancing or capital events. So we have a waterfall structure for our income cash flows, income from rents, income from laundry rooms, income from all of those things that generate income on an ongoing basis. And then we have a different waterfall structure that, of course, prioritizes investors in both cases, uh, but a different waterfall structure for capital distribution events. And capital distribution events are cash out refinancings and asset sales. Do you have an example of a typical waterfall, a simple example? Waterfalls are not simple, but do you have a simple do you have a simple example of a typical waterfall? Sure. When we sell a building, that is what's called a disposition capital event. And upon the sale of a building, let's take a step back for one second. Let's say in our example that the fund only has one asset in it. It is a $10 million building where $3.5 million worth of equity was used to acquire and $6.5 million worth of debt was used, plus a million of equity for capital expenditure projects, meaning that the total cost of the project was $11 million, of which six point five million was funded out of debt. In three years' time, there's been a series of interim cash flows from income, so on and so forth. But in three years' time, there is a sale of that asset, and the asset sells for $15 million in our example. The debt that was used was interest-only debt, so there's still $6.5 million of debt outstanding. So in the waterfall, the first person to get paid out in the waterfall in this basic example is going to be the lawyers, always, um, the lawyers and certainly the brokers. But after the brokers and the lawyers, the next person that gets paid out in the waterfall is the bank that lends you the money, so the $6.5 million. Then after that, within the fund's waterfall, it would be equity investors. Typically, the way that we structure our fund waterfall is that in our example where we used 4.5 million worth of investor equity, the first 4.5 million of investor equity goes wholly back to investors. 
And then once 100% of investor equity has been returned, then there is what's called a promote structure or a structure in which the general partner gets to share in the profitability above the return of 100% of investor equity in the waterfall. In most typical waterfalls, it is first investors get repaid, then investors get repaid any missed preferred return. And we can talk about preferred return in a second, but it's a priority return. And then beyond that, there's usually some split, what's called a promote, where the investor might get 75% and the general partner might get 25% or it might be 80-20 or 70-30. depends on the deal and it often depends on the hurdle rate or preferred return. So typically where you have a lower preferred return, you might have very much depends on the deal, but you might have a closer and maybe more like an 80-20 split, but where you have a higher hurdle, you might have a a 70-30 split or 60-40 split. It really depends on what is market clearing for a syndication. As a general partner, you're obviously trying to find that point where you can distribute your investment, where you can distribute your strategy and get a fee structure that's motivating for your team, um, but where you can distribute it and get investor interest. A good general partner, a good syndicator will spend a lot of time thinking about creating a fee structure that best incentivizes long-term performance. At Goldman, we used to say, makes you long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. So you want to make sure that you've got an investment structure that incentivizes long-term, not short-term. In the example where you mentioned the hurdle and the split, you had 80, 20, 70, 30, 60, 40, Who's getting the 80, who's getting the 70, and who's getting the 60? The investors and the general partners getting the lower percentage, or is it vice versa? It depends on the deals. Our first fund had no split, no promote. 100% of returns went through to investors. That was not long-term commercial, but it was aggressive in order to start a private equity real estate fund platform. We've migrated from zero promote to a very high hurdle and an 80-20 split after that to a lower hurdle with an 80-20 split, to a lower hurdle with a 75-25 split, and so on and so forth. So as we've issued multiple funds, we've played around with the fee structure to ultimately come up with what we think is both commercially reasonable for investors and for the general partner. It is important, investors may hate to hear this, but the reality is that it is important that there are mechanisms and ways through which your sponsor makes some money over time. Everybody wants something for free, but if you have a general partner that is getting paid nothing, a talented general partner is just going to go work somewhere else. And so being able to maintain staff and motivate staff and motivate your general partner is in the long-term best interest of every investor. So creating a fee structure that is commercially viable is really, really important. And a fee structure that does not create a dead man walking fund because not every investment is going to work out. Real estate is a risky business. Just like any form of investment, there is risk involved and you should be well aware of that. However, the last thing you want to do is invest in something. The fund goes or the investment goes slightly wrong and the sponsor's fee structure means that they're no longer incentivized to oversee the unwind of that fund. 
and I've seen it. There are funds out there where the fee structure is so back-ended that the sponsor is really not motivated to do anything at all once the thing has stopped performing perfectly. So they're highly motivated if the fund is going to do well, but if it ends up not doing well, it becomes a dead man walking. And you really want to avoid a fee structure where that might be the case. It's obviously important to create a balance there. In the beginning, you're motivating investors to get involved, but during the life of the investment, you definitely want to motivate the sponsor because at the end of the day, everyone is going to be better off and receive more of a return on investment, a return of investment, and profit. That's right. And ultimately, this real estate investment of almost any type, but especially an operationally intensive type of real estate investment like multifamily housing or workforce multifamily more specifically, you have to have an actively engaged asset management and property management team thinking about your investment every single day. The idea that it's completely passive for anybody involved that's a professional real estate investor is nonsense. So um, so you want to make sure that you've got a fee structure that motivates because otherwise you simply won't get the performance, especially where it's an asset class that has a lot of operational intensity. Before we get to current day and the things that we're dealing with now, I have one more question about syndication and fund structure. And you mentioned the word before, liquidity. What does a typical investor need to understand and anticipate in terms of liquidity? I mean, obviously, if you're in the equity markets, it's highly liquid. You can trade several times a day or several times a month or a week or whatever. What would someone expect in terms of liquidity with a real estate fund, especially one that is a blind pool fund? Is there a difference between liquidity and a blind pool fund and a single asset fund? I can't speak more broadly to the industry as a whole. I can only talk to our experience as an organization. Because we have so many investors, it actually means that there is greater potential for liquidity because I can go out to my investor base more broadly and I can see if there's a buyer in the secondary market of the shares that you might wish to sell. We have run a semi-auction process on a couple of occasions. However, generally speaking, real estate is not a liquid asset class at any level. And certainly entering into a syndicated real estate deal is going to be illiquid, and you should assume that you are going to only be able to get out of that investment when the underlying real estate is sold or cash out refinanced. And in my opinion, that's why the returns of real estate are so high relative to the risk. What are you being compensated for as an investor? You're being compensated for the risk, yes, but I would argue you're being compensated exceptionally well for the underlying real estate risk, what you're being compensated for is a combination of liquidity risk and the underlying real estate risk. As a former illiquids trader and as a structured credit trader and structured derivatives trader, when you look at acquiring any asset class and putting a price on something, anything, you need to bifurcate it. You need to separate it into its different forms of risk, interest rate risk, credit risk, equity risk, liquidity risk, tax risk, 
legislative risk, so on and so forth, and put a price on any of those different subcomponents of risk. And that's what I did on a daily basis with my team at Goldman. And so here in real estate, when you're acquiring an asset or acquiring shares in an asset, you need to think about the underlying risk as well as the liquidity risk. And in my opinion, generally speaking, the internal rate of returns or the, the overall total return, the combination of income return plus capital appreciation potential return in the funds that we offer is outsized compared to the risk. And it's outsized because you're giving up liquidity. So relative to investing your money in a US treasury at 65 basis points for 10 years, we're able to generate we believe we will be, and we have over the past few years, generated substantially higher returns than that. However, with a U.S. Treasury, you can sell $500 million of a U.S. Treasury in a matter of minutes or seconds, uh, whereas obviously you will not be able to exit this investment efficiently. So with a single asset fund, it's also easier to, under, to value the underlying real estate with a larger pool of investments. Uh, a larger pool of assets, a larger pool of real estate, it becomes more complicated to value or determine what's called the net asset value, the NAV. So in that regard, you would think that a single asset fund would be easier to exit than a large fund, and it would therefore have higher liquidity because it's easier to underlying to value the underlying. But on the flip side, a single asset fundraise will have a much fewer, smaller group of investors. So if you have a fund that has 20 investors in it, the chances that there's another investor that wants to take you out of your position is much smaller than if you have a fund like our last fund, which had 500 investors in it. And the chances that there is one of those 500 that's interested in taking you out of your position is much, much higher. One critical point when looking at a liquid investing of any type, but it proves to be very relevant here in syndicated real estate, it's substantially easier to exit a fund position when the economy is doing well, when the underlying asset is doing well. It becomes exceptionally difficult to exit an illiquid investment when either of those things is doing badly. So what we found is that where investors have tried to exit one of our funds because they had an event that was uncorrelated to the performance of the fund. So for example, sadly, one of our investors passed away and their trust needed to liquidate the position in order to spread the money between the recipients of the trust. That was fairly easy to handle. The passing of that individual was uncorrelated to the performance of the fund and uncorrelated to what was going on in the economy. Uh, similarly, we had an investor that needed to sell because they were starting a business. Again, uncorrelated to the economy, uncorrelated to the performance of the fund. Today, it's obviously a horrible economy out there, a disastrous economy for many and there's a, a massive amount of financial strain, and now would not be a good moment to try and liquidate ownership in our funds. Whether our funds are doing well or doing badly is kind of irrelevant because at the end of the day, there's just not a strong liquid bid for your investment in this environment. So liquidity is a critical point. In my opinion, real estate syndication funds do, and certainly in our case, we do pay a premium for the fact that we're illiquid relative to the risk of the underlying investment. Very, very well explained, Tom. Thank you so much for that. When you and I met about three years ago, I was extremely impressed with your approach to 
how you manage the entire big picture of your real estate offerings. And you know what I've seen from this conversation today is that there's pretty much this underlying structure which you've always maintained, and then you've just scaled each aspect of that so that you could grow. And it's a template. It's a te- and you've heard me say this to you before when we've run into each other at different places. I've said to you, this is a template. If you want to put together a syndication and you want to grow it from the beginning and you want to scale it over a period of time, look at what it is that Tom is doing because it's a template for how to do it. Now, with that said, all right, you still have to get your accountant and your attorney and everybody else that you're, that's going to give you advice on the right things to do because over time, things change with uh, regulations. And so obviously, you want to make sure that you are in line with all of that. And I think this is a good time for us to transition into what's happening today. Enter the black swan, COVID-19. And some of the things I'd like to touch on with you, Tom, were there early warning signs? Did you take proactive measures? How did you manage all of the stakeholders' expectations? You know, touch a little bit on what you saw happening as it was happening, what you did to be proactive, and how you're going to change what you're doing moving forward as a result of this. So we had formulated our strategy a number of years ago to focus on cities that did not have high concentration of hospitality and food and beverage employment. So we're based now in the Southeast. We have two offices, one in Charleston, South Carolina, one in Atlanta, Georgia. Charleston, which is where I live, is a beautiful city and has a huge food and beverage and hospitality sector. It's a big tourist city, as is Savannah, as is Hilton Head, as is Myrtle Beach. We don't invest in any of those cities. And so I don't want to say that we foresaw this crisis. We certainly did not. But any economic downturn is going to hit flighty industries like food and beverage, like hospitality first. This pandemic has hit those industries particularly hard, but it generally, in any economic down cycle, those are industries that get hit quickly and first. So strategically, we've stayed away from cities that had heavy employment in those sectors. And as a result, that's part of the reason that we've seen relatively little, in fact, no effect to our collections so far. Obviously, we were tracking this crisis and and having an international background, as I do, and following the world more broadly, we were tracking this crisis from early on. I wish there was a massive amount that we could do to reposition, but real estate and investing and managing a portfolio, a sizable portfolio of real estate, is a little bit like captaining an aircraft carrier you can only make changes a long way in advance. So it's a slow-moving beast, and it takes a long time to turn. There were no kind of strategic changes that we could make very early on. We did stop our acquisitions in late February and March, which I think was fairly proactive. Uh, We stopped our acquisitions to make sure that we had a good sense as to where the market was, as to where our segment was, Our strategy from the get-go was well-placed and relatively recession-resilient. 
not necessarily pandemic resilient, but just recession resilient more broadly. Our strategy and our focus on lower average rent locations. So our average rent is between 700 and 750 across the Southeast. And it's actually lower than that in the Midwest. It's more like 600 a month in the Midwest. And of course, these sizable checks, COVID stimulus checks, go a long way when your rent is 600 or $700 a month. Obviously, they don't go a long way if your rent is $1,500 a month. I think strategically, we were well positioned. And then as early as we possibly could, which really was early March, we started to work very closely with our residents. So our operating team stepped up and started providing information about where to get money if you need it, where to find support if you need it, keeping residents abreast of regulatory changes as they were happening, making sure that they knew where resources were available. We also, of course, shut down all of our leasing offices and we moved to a digital leasing model. We already had a number of 3D models and virtual tours, but we've spent more money and more time in investing in digital leasing. We've done everything we can, we believe, to try and protect our residents, to try and protect our employees. And we tried to do it as early as we could in March. We've always relied a lot on technology. We've been a relatively early adopter of a lot of tech, certainly for our low to moderate income segment. We use Lisa, which is Appfolio's digital leasing agent. So first interactions are all with our artificial intelligence leasing agent, Lisa. And now the entire process of engagement, leasing, tours, and move-in can be handled without any human contact from our side. So we've moved to a, a complete social distancing model. We've made sure that our leasing offices are locked down as best possible, while still at the same time being very available to residents. Uh, we've rolled out support for our residents where needed. There are payment plans available where needed. Uh, they've not been taken up very much, if any. We've made sure that that information is available. So it's come down to education. And then looking forward, we have changed our underwriting in terms of our rent growth expectations, our physical occupancy expectations, our bad debt expectations, as well as debt service reserves that we now will need to take under the new capital markets environment. Looking backwards, we were well strategically placed. We've operated well through this crisis so far, we think. We've communicated well, and, and we don't want to pretend that we did this completely uh, by ourselves. We took best practice wherever we saw it. Uh, we're on the NMHC mailing list. That's the, the National Multi-Housing Industry Group. Uh, we took a lot of their best practice, and we tried to apply it. Um, so we looked and we researched for resources wherever we could uh, and leveraged those resources as best we could. Do you think that COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on you, even though you were proactive and apparently did everything that you possibly could to have as little impact as possible, do you think it's going to impact the anticipated returns going forward on some of the existing funds, or is that even something you want to share? Certainly. Uh, I wrote an article about this, actually, which you can find on my uh, broker-dealer's website, which is ballastrock.com. I wrote an article about this back in early March, and uh, people thought I was crazy. But I think so far, my viewpoint hasn't changed. 
And the article was about the fact that we're going to have short-term operating turbulence. We haven't seen it so far in our portfolio in the Southeast, but we have seen it in the Midwest, uh, where collections have been slightly lower than in the past, not massively lower, but slightly lower. In the Southeast, as I said, collections have actually been consistent, if not even, frankly, slightly higher than they have been in the past. But you can see from the multifamily industry nationally that there has been a decline in payments and collections. I think the national average of uh, collections April, they were talking around 85% on the residential side. Does that sound right? Uh, That sounds a little low, but yes. I think if I recall correctly, it's about 10% lower on average than it would be historically. So if historically there was about 5% of bad debt and it was running at 85%, that would make sense. We saw collections in the Midwest approximately 5% lower than in prior months. So we were doing better than the national average, but we did see a decline in collections. However, here in the Southeast, we're doing slightly better than normal. But that's just to do with differing demographics in the different regions. It's also to do with different operating teams. We have in-house management here in the Southeast, whereas in the Midwest, historically, we'd use third-party property management, and it's just not as good. There are distinct differences between locations, income levels, asset types, etc. We think we've outperformed in general, uh, but we've certainly outperformed here in the Southeast. But my viewpoint has been that we will have short-term operating turbulence for a period of three, six, 12 months. But there have been some asset classes in real estate that have gotten hammered in the short term, such as triple net, the top 200 triple net tenants, names that you will recognize, the top 200 triple net tenants in April paid 45% less rent than they paid in prior months, 45%. Wow. Hospitality, you know, the hotel industry has seen a uh, occupancy drop from what must have been in the 80s or 90s down to 20% on average. And if you look at things like luxury, it's down to 8%. So that's just absolutely unsustainable. Clearly, hospitality has been pummeled. Triple net has been pummeled, depending on who your specific tenant is. And there's a, you know, there'll be some tenants that have come out of this brilliantly. Some tenants have paid 100% of their rent, even if they're in the food and beverage industry. Uh, one name pops to mind, Chick-fil-A. The reports that I saw showed them paying all of their rent. So there's going to be a massive differential between tenants in some industries. But fundamentally, a lot of asset classes in real estate have gotten badly, badly hurt. And some, in, some aspects of real estate, in my opinion, are going to change forever. Our use of office space is going to change forever. There are many big companies, I'm sure, that are realizing, wait a second, we can have our employees work from home. They don't have to commute. I may lose a little bit of productivity, but they work from home. I reduce my rental bill and I actually can improve the quality of life of my employees. So that was, in my opinion, going to happen anyway, to an extent. And the COVID crisis has driven that home rapidly. So it's not to say that nobody needs office space, but many companies are reevaluating how much office space they need. So there's a series of asset classes, in my opinion, that there's going to be a big change in valuation. And what that's going to mean is that there's a lot of capital in the real estate industry. There's a lot of desire to invest in real estate. 
And that capital is going to be allocated to safe haven assets. So what are those safe haven assets? Well, they're those assets where performance has been relatively consistent throughout the crisis. And I happen to be sitting on a portfolio of assets that have had a zero change in collections in the last two months. So I think that in the short term, you're going to see turbulence. In the long term, you're going to see, in my opinion, a flight of capital to assets that have performed well, whether that's your Amazon warehouse, which obviously has, I'm sure, performed extremely well over the last two months, uh, whether it's that or whether it's your portfolio of multifamily housing that has had consistent payments throughout this period. And even if it has a slight decline in payments in the future, the amount of additional capital that's flowing out of areas like office, that's flowing out of areas like other forms of commercial real estate that are getting badly pummeled by the crisis and the subsequent depression that we're in, that flood of capital is going to move into those segments. I also think you're going to see a shift of capital away from equities markets because you've seen massive volatility. You've seen a big down leg. And yes, things have rallied back, but there's a reasonable chance that you see another down leg in the equities markets in the not too distant future. And the result of that is that your average retail investor is going to have seen a 25% decline in their equity portfolio, a 15% rally back, another 15, 20% decline. That kind of volatility in a, what's supposed to be a diversified investment portfolio doesn't fit very well with many investors. And therefore, I think you're going to see some reallocation into the real estate sector. And within the real estate sector, it's going to be an allocation into the asset classes that have been consistent or relatively consistent through this crisis. If you're in one of those safe haven uh, or potential safe haven aspects of real estate, you are very, very well positioned. And ultimately, real estate and most assets trade at a spread to risk-free rates. I think of real estates in many ways like a form of fixed income. Right now, if you're acquiring a 6% cap rate asset today, when 10-year base rates are at 65 basis points, you are acquiring an asset that is at a 5.35% premium to base rates. So that six cap asset. A year ago or two years ago, when rates were at one and a half or two in the 10-year, that same six cap asset was only at a premium of four. So today, if you buy it at the same cap rate on a spread or a net interest margin, on a spread to base rates, you are buying it at a wider premium than you purchased it in the past. But it doesn't actually mean there needs to be a, a movement in price. When people look at real estate, there's still potential for cap compression from where we are today, uh, even from where we are were six months ago in the right asset classes, where, which have been relative safe havens compared to much of the industry. And when you say cap compression, what do you mean by that? There is the capacity for cap rates to lower. And capitalization rates or cap rates, as you know, are a factor of net operating income and price. Cap rate is equal to NOI divided by price. And so if the price goes up and the NOI hasn't changed, then the cap rate's going to be lower. And what you're saying is that you actually still see an opportunity for cap rates to go lower, which means prices are going a little higher because of this premium spread. Exactly. So my viewpoint is that we will have short-term turbulence, 
but that there will be a flight to safety in certain asset classes that have performed well. And as a result of that flight to safety, as a result of all of that money that's flowing out of segments of real estate and segments of other asset classes like equities that have performed badly through this crisis, that flight to quality is going to drive prices up. Because ultimately, what it's doing is it's compressing the spread. It's compressing the spread between cap rates and base rates, and base rates are so low. In fact, we're highly likely going to a negative real rate environment, just like there is a negative real rate environment in Europe, like there is in Japan. The chances of negative real rates, uh, I mean, negative real rates have already happened in the long end of the tips curve, um, but you, you could be in a, a, a zero, we're at effectively a zero rate environment as it is, and we could get to a negative rate environment, negative nominal rate environment, as a result of that, you could see substantial continued cap compression in asset classes that have performed reasonably. And so it becomes a real flight to quality. Well, that's an incredible insight. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Realty Speak listeners, we are coming to a close. Uh, that is all we have time for today. But I would say that that was pretty incredible. And phenomenal, Tom. Really appreciate that you shared so much with me today and the Realty Speak listeners. Before you go, I do have one more question. And that question is, Tom, if you woke up tomorrow and something in the syndication business had changed forever, what do you wish that would be? Regulation and compliance. Though I absolutely understand theoretically how important it is to protect investors and to make sure that your communication is clear. It is something that those of us that are full-time professionals do naturally do anyway. And the regulatory and compliance framework for a broker dealer is extremely painful, time-consuming. It doesn't cost very much, but it's just painful. <laughs> so, so it would be regulatory and compliance. Thanks for sharing that. And hopefully people at the uh, regulatory agencies, and we know what they are, we don't have to use the acronyms, <laughs> are listening as well. Again, phenomenal, Tom. Appreciate this. Uh, how would Realty Speak fans get in touch with you? I know you have uh, several ways to get in touch, but why don't you give the easiest way? Sure. Send me an email, tom at ballastrock.com, tom at ballastrock.com. Thanks so much, Bill, for the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. It's always a pleasure, and I hope that your listeners have learned a little something. Don't hesitate to reach out. I've regularly worked with potential issuers in the past, and I've come at this industry uh, as an outsider, and so I'm certainly ha happy to help give direction to people that are considering getting into the business and hopefully there's a, a little bit of insight in this uh, in this call and, and I'm sure that I can help avoid some of the pitfalls that I've made in my own career over the last four years so again don't hesitate to reach out well that's very nice of you to offer that Tom insights galore no doubt about that I'm sure the Realty Speak fans have a lot to think about after listening to this episode by the way I will put Tom's email address in the show notes. And Tom, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Bill. 
for having me and appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page and there is an opt-in option at the top of the page or search Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, financing, investment, real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at billwidener.com. That's B I L L W E I D. N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.